Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. An algorithm is a system of steps used to solve a problem or complete a task. My guest today is Dr. Pranav Patwardhan, and he uses algorithms in the study of pathology. Today on the show, we'll talk about how he developed the system, how he wrote about it in an article in the Pathologist magazine, and how he uses the system not only in his own practice, but in teaching others. Then after the show, I'll have a preview of my upcoming interview with veterinary pathologist, Dr. Nicola Perry. But right now, here's Dr. Pranav Patwardhan. You're originally from India. How did you become interested in pathology? Yeah, I, uh, it kind of started, my interest in pathology started when I was in second year of my medical school. When I opened okay. Robbins and I started reading Robbins Pathology, I realized like pathology was really the subject which kind of gave us the entire knowledge about the disease process from the etiology to the mechanisms of how the changes occur in the organ systems which ultimately lead to the clinical manifestations of the disease. Uh, sooner, I also realized that this subject was not only related to getting to know how diseases occur or how clinical symptoms develop, but it, it also had relevance in actual patient care and patient management because it provided us insights about how we could diagnose a particular disease and potentially how we could design drugs in the future to treat a particular disease. So I thought that pathology was kind of at the center of patient management or clinical care. And okay. there was a lot of scope to do a lot of things in, in pathology in the future. Uh, if you talk about cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment, there is a lot of scope in molecular pathology. And in terms of treatment, if we are able to define molecular signatures of a tumor that could potentially open new avenues for drug design and drug development. And this kind of, you know, broad uh, kind of prospects in pathology and the fact that it, it, it mattered at every level of patient care uh, got me interested into the subject. Okay. Were these like all things you were thinking about back in your second year of medical school? So, uh, like the process started in the second year of medical school, but as I started also attending clinical rotations, I and mm -hmm. as I started learning clinical subjects, I slowly realized how relevant the knowledge of pathology was in day-to-day -day kind of patient care and patient management. And so I thought I, I, I wanted to become a diagnostician, and that's how I chose pathology. Now, as we said, trained in India. And then you, recently you've come over to the U.S. And I'm curious, in your, in your time here in the U.S., it hasn't been really that long yet, but have you noticed, are there differences in the way pathology is practiced in the U.S. versus in India? So as you mentioned, like I have been here only for about three months. I've started my mm -hmm. residency training. What really uh, made me come into, you know, into the residency training program here was I thought at the end of my training, there were some gaps in my training when it came to molecular pathology or when it came to the utilization of the latest immunohistochemical markers, latest techniques in pathology. And, and I kind of wanted to get a good training into all this uh, because I felt that a good knowledge of histomorphology and good knowledge of molecular techniques 
recent advances in pathology would help me understand any disease process in a much better way. And okay. I feel fortunate that I've got a chance to train at UPMC. Yeah, that's that's one of the, the big names in pathology in, in the country for sure. I wanted to move on then to, uh, you've, uh, you started a Facebook page called Understanding Pathology back in 2016. So it's going been going on for a few years now. What initially when you started that, what did you what were you trying to accomplish with that? Yeah, so when I was doing my residency training in India, uh, I also got an opportunity to interact with medical students and to kind of discuss the common practical aspects of gross pathology with them. Sooner I realized as I, as I advanced to my training in India that uh, maybe as medical students, our perception of pathology was slightly different. Uh, like we kind of tend to look at it as an academic subject and maybe not realize to what extent pathology is really relevant in the practice of medicine. Uh, the example that I would like to give is we tend to learn about maybe various subtypes of breast carcinomas in medical school, but we tend to ignore the importance of margins, the importance of deep margins, and the relevance for a surgeon who is who is involved in breast surgery. We also tend to not emphasize that much on the role of ERPR, HER2 immunostaining, and how our diagnosis of a particular tumor into a particular molecular subtype is going to decide or is going to guide what kind of treatment a particular patient would receive and what kind of treatment would be best for a particular case. So th that is the time when I thought that something should be done from my end to make some little contribution to help make things simpler and concepts easier to understand. As I also advanced through my residency training, I realized that initially as a pathology resident, the learning curve is pretty steep. So when you come out of medical school, you are really not that hands-on in pathology as compared to the expectation as a pathology resident. But when you start seeing histopathology and rotating through surgical pathology rotations, every organ is different, every slide is different. And every case which comes up every day has some subtle differences. And it can become overwhelming or difficult at times to understand how analytical the subject of histopathology is and how a particular schematic or a systematic approach would help us learn these things in a better way. And that was the time that I realized maybe I should prepare some notes from my learning or from my experience as a new trainee in pathology and try to share them with others and see if they would be of any help to others. Was the target audience then uh, other medical students or were you trying to influence maybe the just the, the greater public about what pathology was? So it was mainly medical students and anyone who is, who is thinking of doing pathology specialization or is a new trainee into pathology. Okay. And did you hear from anybody that, that they saw your site and they read some of the things there and that kind of changed their perception about pathology and maybe caused them to go into the field? Yeah, like I have heard from quite a few number of residents who did mention that they never understood 
the scope and the real relevance of the subject to that extent in their medical school years and they came across this page and that kind of made concepts simpler for them and easier for them and that's why they kind of got influenced to some extent to join pathology i also received good good amount of feedback from many senior people in this field and they were kind of happy that i was trying to do something in the field of pathology education that had to feel good to get that kind of encouragement both from like you said the senior people and and the students as well yes that had to be feel rewarding yes definitely part of that sort of uh encouragement and acknowledgement i guess you were uh, named to the pathologist magazine's power list for three years in a row uh, yes. i believe it was 2018 19 and then this year as well yes so how how does that feel to be recognized in that way? Is it kind of, you know, it's been three years and it's not a big deal anymore? Or is it still a big deal to you? It's, it's certainly a big deal. And I really appreciate and I thank everyone who kind of admires the little amount of things that I've tried to do or I'm doing. Uh, it, it's great. It's a great feeling when uh, an international magazine, which kind of recognizes people around the world, thinks about me and thinks about me three times in a row. And that also kind of inspires me to, you know, contribute more to our specialty in the future. So I'm, I'm very grateful to all the people who send good wishes and who feel good about the things that I've done. You actually also wrote an article that appeared in the Pathologist magazine last year in 2019. And I want to spend a, quite a bit of time talking about this because it's it's an interesting subject to me. But it, the, the title of the article was The Art of Algorithms. Yes. Right. And what initially inspired you to write an article about algorithms? Yeah. So as I mentioned, like on my page, I tried to post some flow charts or some kind of diagnostic charts in, in pathology. And I received this email from the editor of the pathologist as to whether I would be able to write an article about how I make this flow charts or how I make these algorithms. That okay. was really a cool idea, and uh, but that was equally a difficult thing to write because it's not easy to try to accommodate everything and everything in histopathology in one article, and it it was a great task uh, for me. The things that I I really wanted to address in this article was what are the basic things that you must follow when you try to reach to a particular diagnosis. How will you think when you are given a particular slide and what should be your particular approach? And that's why I have kind of divided the way I make algorithms into four major kind of subdivisions. So the first thought that I always have when I make any algorithm on any organ system or any lesions is what is the clinical data which is relevant to me? So clinical data can be further subclassified into the actual presentation of the disease, into the radiological features of a particular lesion, the biochemical workup, and the cytological workup if available. Now, as you might imagine, there could be different things that could be relevant for different types of lesions. For example, if you are discussing about neuropathology and kind of CNS tumors, I would really be interested into the age and the site 
of the lesion. So when I know the age and the site of the lesion, the point that I want to make or that I want to put forward to the match students or the nutrient is, is you kind of arrive at a narrow differential diagnosis from a list of variety of CNS tumors that are mentioned and that are described in literature. And after you go through this clinical data, if you kind of have a look at the radiological picture and try to evaluate the radiological impression, you kind of narrow it down further. An example that I, I may give here is, suppose there is a case of a pediatric CNS tumor in the posterior fossa. The two commonest things that I would think of is maybe a pilocytic astrocytoma and a medulloblastoma. So the location of the tumor and the age is making me think of the commonest entities. And then if radiological picture assists me in describing if the lesion is like a solid lesion infiltrating around or is it like a cyst with a mural nodule, mm -hmm. that would really help me in deciding before I actually look at the slide, whether it's going to be pilocytic astrocytoma or medulloblastoma. So having said that, exceptions will occur. And so it doesn't mean that anything here would be diagnostic. But what I want to say is from the entire pool of data and from the sea of knowledge, you would be able to decide a particular direction in which you want to think before you start the actual evaluation of the slide. Another example that I can give is maybe of evaluation of a solitary thyroid nodule. So if it's a single nodule, if it's a male patient and it's presenting at a younger age, I am kind of more guarded and I'm thinking that it could possibly be a neoplastic lesion. The next step for me from the entire clinical notes would be to look at the thyroid hormone levels and the thyroid antibodies. So if, if the T3, T4 and TSH levels are kind of normal, my degree of suspicion that it is possibly a neoplastic nodule would be higher than a scenario where T3, T4 and TSH would be altered. And this kind of interpretation of the complex data before you actually see the specimen on grass or you see it on microscopy is going to help us a long way in training. The next step is grass evaluation. As a trainee and as someone who is new to pathology, I also get excited a lot with the molecular techniques, with the latest technology, next generation sequencing. Mm -hmm. and I feel at times because of this, we tend to ignore or we tend to not give so much importance to the basic things which have been time tested for decades or maybe centuries. Right. So grass, grass examination is, is a very rewarding part or a very rewarding step of any evaluation of any case and pathology. Oh, I agree. So the next step would be grass examination. And the data that we have assimilated before the grass evaluation is going to help us to see at the relevant positive and the negative things in grass examination. I always encourage the, the people whom I interact with to look at the size, color, consistency, and the shape. So these four things can really help 
a lot in deciding what are the differential diagnoses that we are looking for in microscopy. For mm-hmm. example, if it is a diffusely enlarged thyroid, I would want to know is it meaty looking or is it more nodular and formed, and that would kind of help me to potentially differentiate. Graves disease from Hashimoto thyroiditis. Right. If I'm looking at the solitary thyroid nodule, which appears to be well circumscribed, I would like to look at the color because if the color is kind of mahogany brown, that would make me think of Herdelsel neoplasm. And if it doesn't look like that, I would think of all the other causes of STN, like follicular adenoma, follicular carcinoma, or even medullary carcinoma at times. So at every step of my flow charts that I make, I try to rule in or rule out a particular subset of lesion or lesions. And I try to arrive at a very narrow list of what kind of things am I expecting to see under microscopy. The next step is microscopy. Microscopic evaluation has advanced from simple hematoxylin and eosin stain examination to a complex array of immunohistochemical assays and nowadays supplemented by molecular diagnosis. However, hematoxylin and eosin stain stain slides and the the evaluation of them is is very rewarding again. Mm -hmm. It may be a surprise for a lot of people even pathology to kind of understand that or to know that HNE stain not only helps in the diagnosis, but that may also help us with certain clues which would potentially suggest a particular genotype of a tumor. Right. So when we actually sign out cases or maybe sign out cases as a trainee or as a pathologist in the future, what a surgeon or a clinician is really interested is in the actual diagnosis in the grade of the tumor, the stage of the tumor, the condition of the margins, etc. But as a part of the learning process, I try to encourage myself to describe any slide that I am seeing. And that description would gradually move from the low power scanner view to the higher power view. So I try to describe the patterns of cellular arrangement, the appearance of the nuclear chromatin, and the cytoplasm, and I try to derive the differential diagnosis on the basis of the histomorphology. For example, if it's a spindle cell lesion, the first thing that I try to look for under low power is, is it very cellular? If it's very cellular and bad looking, you are going to think of a high-grade kind of lesion or a potentially malignant lesion or even synovial sarcoma. If it's, if it's a lesion which has kinky nuclei, those kinky nuclei kind of make me think of whether it is a neural tumor. And then I would look for signs of necrosis or high-grade nuclear pleomorphism to mm-hmm. rule out malignant peripheral nerve sheet tumors. And once that's done, I would look for verrucular bodies which would and alternate hypercellular and hypocellular areas, which would help differentiate schwannoma from neurofibroma. So this process entirely looks complicated when I describe, but 
if you follow a particular systematic methodological approach i think by the time you really need any immunohistochemical stain evaluation 90% of the times you have reached at a particular diagnosis and you are only using ihc to kind of confirm what you feel and to confirm your diagnosis the next step and the last step would be ihc evaluation and molecular techniques the thing that i wanted to also describe under microscopy is as i mentioned there can be some subtle clues that this particular lesion or a tumor could belong to a particular genotype for example if you are seeing a clear cell renal cell carcinoma which has some papillary pattern i kind of try to look for presence of eosinophilic nucleoli and that would make me think at the back of my mind as to is it hlrcc or hereditary leiomyomatosis and renal cell carcinoma i think this attitude or this kind of process of learning is going to go a long way because we may not have molecular techniques sophisticated techniques available everywhere and 24 by 7 all the time and that's the time when it would be important this knowledge of clinical analysis of clinical data cross evaluation and microscopic evaluation would help us to triage cases and to decide which cases really need a further genotypic workup or molecular workup and which may not need so this is a kind of an educational approach that i have followed when i try to learn things even mm-hmm. now as a trainee and that's that's what my what i mean by the art of algorithms i i also acknowledge that there are certain pitfalls so this kind of flow charts or this methodology is only meant to orient a particular person to a organ or a organ system and to help one understand how would he or she go about analyzing a particular set of lesions it may not be entirely complete it may not cover all the lesions there are surprises in medicine but sure. this kind of gives of gives us a framework which i feel helps us in better understanding of pathology in general i think one of the advantages to an approach like this is it like you said it gives you a system to follow so that every time you you know you're grossing a certain type of specimen or you're looking at the microscopy of a certain type of specimen you have a this a same approach to follow and then you kind of make decisions based on what you see and it sort of it branches off from there but you using a systematic approach like this you never forget a step because it's built into your system once you once you kind of automatize it is that is that sound accurate yes it certainly sounds accurate i would also like to add that this is a particular step by step approach which i feel all of us follow day in and day out it's nothing very new or it's nothing magical whenever we get our slides subconsciously or consciously we are thinking about how to go about it and how to reach to a particular diagnosis it is just that to bring it on paper and to kind of describe it in the form of a flow chart at times sounds difficult and that is what i have tried to do at the same time this kind of uh, algorithmic process or an approach may be different for different individuals it might 
the way one thinks as a pathologist may be slightly different and that's fine and that's why i i have always encouraged like when i was in india i've encouraged some my students there and and my colleagues to kind of develop their own methodology of how they feel comfortable about analyzing a particular set of lesions or organ systems and try to devise similar kind of flow charts which they would make use of for academics and also when they sign out cases do you feel that you know the process of creating an algorithm like this that part of the process is it helps you learn what you're trying to do like making the system for for deciding on a diagnosis helps you learn about the diagnosis that you're trying to make like it's almost a circle yes it also it certainly helps me to learn about the individual entities that we encounter during training and at the same time it kind of helps me develop maybe a more practically oriented approach towards things in surgical pathology mm-hmm. so uh, this kind of process will not give you all data all knowledge about a particular lesion so if if you see a particular flow chart that i i may have made it may not describe the entire lesion it will only highlight the diagnostically relevant and the clinically relevant things which would help us take important decisions and decide about a particular slide that we are evaluating that that's important to note that it doesn't it doesn't cover every possible option yes i'm curious then how when did you start using this sort of way of thinking i mean does this go back to to medical school for you or even earlier than that yeah i would say even earlier than that and it it might it might sound funny but i think partly this kind of way of thinking the way i think it it comes from my training in indian classical music now when i say this it it would really be a surprise okay but i i feel when we learn classical music so music whether it's indian classical or whether it's western classical it is kind of defined by a set of rules like there are particular notes that you can sing in a particular way or you are permitted to sing in a particular way and there are certain rules which don't allow you to sing a particular note in a particular song or a particular rag and that kind of analysis or analytical approach that that, that developed maybe from the years of my training in, in in classical music helped me to you know use a similar kind of analysis in, in pathology in the future uh, i also felt that uh, at times a lot of information that is that is getting updated in in our field in in, in rather every field of medicine may be overwhelming to med students and also to us as trainees for example there are always new molecular markers new immunohistochemical stains coming up every week every month and there is a sea of knowledge and or there is a ocean of knowledge that that's available in front of us and it's not easy to grasp everything and to learn everything in the years of residency training what really i wanted to achieve out of all this that i kind of did is a smooth transition or or a or a smooth bridge kind of connecting our years of medical school to the years of residency training in pathology
I want to go back to the Indian classical music for just a second. You're, you're not the yeah. you're not the first person that I've interviewed that has mentioned uh, that they've also studied music. And okay, do you feel that the discipline that you need for studying music, you can apply that skill to studying pathology or or medicine in general? Yes, exactly. I mean, you pointed it out exactly right. So uh, the discipline, the perseverance, the years of you know practice daily practice that yeah. is involved yeah that is involved in learning music or trying to sing classical music in any of its form kind of goes a long way because i think it it, it helps you learn to be patient it helps you uh, to learn that everything cannot be achieved in a day or a week or a month right. and and it takes months or maybe years to kind of even learn some aspects like maybe one percent or two percent of the knowledge of music that we have and yes so i was trained uh, in indian classical music i i started my training at the age of four oh, wow. and i trained for nearly 20 years okay so that has gone a long way in i think and that has that has helped me in my in my career in medicine because med schools and residency they are long years they are difficult years there are steep learning curves and somewhere down the lane, I feel music keeps me more balanced, more calm and more <laughs> productive. Sure. Yeah, I can understand that. Definitely. I think we, we touched on this a little bit already, but do you formally use your your algorithmic approach or algorithms you've made to to teach other people, other other trainees or medical students? So as I mentioned, like when I was training in India, yes, I used to like, as a part of the residency training, I was expected to kind of teach the grass specimens to med med students. Okay. And this is where I used to try to touch upon the things, like the approach. Uh, I also realized that at times as med students, we all tend to get excited if we get the right diagnosis. And, and I tried to impress upon them that it wasn't really that important to get a right diagnosis for a gross specimen, rather the approach and how you, how you arrive at a decision, whether it was benign or malignant, whether it was primary or metastatic was kind of more important to me rather than the final diagnosis, whether it was right or wrong. So I have used it like uh, when, I, when I was supposed to interact with my students in the past. Of course, when we are residents, I think, we all are colleagues and we kind of discuss a lot of things. So although it's not formally there, but I think subconsciously or consciously when we discuss things and we discuss a particular topic, it kind of comes out from me every time. Okay. That makes sense. Have you ever found a situation where an algorithm or the algorithmic approach just didn't apply? Like it was so unusual that you, you couldn't use that process? Yes. So as I said, it, it will happen a lot of times. So the, the flowcharts or algorithms that I have made are, are basically an introduction for a smooth transition from our knowledge as med students to our responsibilities as resident trainees or in the future as professional pathologists. So exceptions do always happen. And as I already touched upon it before, these algorithms will not cover all the lesions, they will not cover all the exotic findings in a particular lesion, they would 
the, the only aim of them is to kind of give a broad overview of the things. So there will be scenarios and there have been scenarios where the, the logical steps have not led to a diagnosis which I intended to. But as I mentioned, this would apply to certain uncommon cases and certain rare scenarios that tend to happen in medicine. You know, you've mentioned a couple times about teaching others, uh, helping other people to learn. Have, do you have any aspirations to, you know, to become a, a professor of pathology, to actually formally be, become a, a teacher? So I would love to definitely teach in the future, but I haven't <laughs> thought of it to that extent right now. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm enjoying my residency training and uh, I'm trying to learn as much as I can. From the great experience. Sure, I suppose that's that's a few years down the road yet for you. Yes. Now I've heard many people, and some people have been in this, this podcast as well, talking about the use of visual aids for learning, and it seems like algorithms and the in the flowcharts that you make that that you know you've posted on Twitter and things like that, they kind of they kind of fit this model of a visual learning aid, and then the process of helping students to create their own algorithms they're sort of teaching themselves. Does that, would you agree with that, that this, this is kind of a version of a visual aid for, for learning? Yeah, so I totally agree with that. At times it may be difficult to read through all the text and all the paragraphs of a lot of articles that may be available and things which look simple or which look tabulated or which look like a flowchart are relatively easier to understand. I'm sure, I'm sure all of us feel the same way and uh, this algorithms kind of work in a similar fashion. Okay. All right. Uh, well, Dr. Pat Warden, this, this has been a great conversation. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that, that you'd like to mention before we wrap up? The take home message from me would be like, I have tried to do a little on the basis of the little understanding that I have developed about this field. I feel humbled by the appreciation that a lot of people have about what I've done. I also acknowledge and understand that there are so many experts in our fields who have contributed so many great things. Right. And it's it's important to be a lifelong learner, to you know, excel in, in medicine. It's also important to try to do our our little bit that we can do to help the future generation of physicians. Yep. That's a great take-home message. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Big thanks to Dr. Pat Warden. He gave a lot of practical examples in this episode, so there's definitely something to be learned here. And I'll have links to everything we talked about today, including his article and his Facebook page in the show notes. And the show notes are at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform. And remember, you can always follow the show on Twitter at People of Path. And if you learned something from this episode, make sure you share it with someone you know. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. And now here's a preview of my upcoming interview with Dr. Nicola Perry.
Do you have any stories of ways that you've inspired future veterinary pathologists? I have a relatively recent story that, that might kind of illustrate this. Okay. That there's, um, I came across a new student friend just a couple of months ago in August. Amy, she's a, a vet student at Liverpool University in the UK. So that's the vet school that I graduated from. Mm, and it's right. also my home city as well. And she had come across me on this, there's a really popular networking site for vets. It's called Vets Stay, Go or Diversify. Now it's a, it's a UK based creation and it's, it's a brilliant creation, but it's a, it's a global entity. It's literally used by, by vets and, and vet students, thousands of them all across the world. So Amy, my new friend, she had found me there and she had emailed me just randomly to tell me about her interest in pathology. And she asked if we could chat at some point. So we did, we had a Zoom call a couple of days later and we chatted for a couple of hours actually, it was really nice. And I was just able to answer a lot of her questions that, that she had about working in pathology, how to kind of carve out a, a pathway to, to start in that career and stuff like that. To hear more from Dr. Perry, tune in next week on the People of Pathology podcast.